welcome back to another episode of Diversity on Fire. This is your host, Heather. Our goal with Diversity on Fire is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Joining me today is Omar L. Harris. Omar is an author, coach, speaker, and consultant. He has taken his 20-plus years of corporate leadership and distilled it into tangible thoughts and actions for use by both current and future leaders worldwide. Welcome to the show, Omar. Thank you for having me, Heather. Happy to be here. Yes, I'm definitely happy to have you. So uh, before we kind of roll into the leadership conversation outside of work, so outside of all of your professional endeavors, who are you personally? Like what's your (laughs) cultural background, your family dynamics, some non-work-related hobbies and interests? Yeah, I was born in Pittsburgh. So, um, you know, Pittsburgh is a working class uh, town. I've lived all over the U.S. Um, growing up, um, West Virginia, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, my parents, um, father is a chemical engineer turned environmental engineer. Mother, uh, before she passed away, was a social worker turned early childhood educator. And uh, I've had the opportunity to live all over the world as well. I would say that if, to distill myself into one word is, is I'm a seeker. And so what that means to me is I'm someone who's trying to identify, you know, universal truths that I can utilize to empower other people and myself to achieve, you know, whatever objectives and goals that um, we're trying to achieve. And so... There are some universal truths and universal ladders that you can pull on, you can climb up, that shortcut the process for you um, and allow you to have the life that you want to have. And I think that, that you know, for me, um, I've seen that, you know, positive psychology is a way to do that and other other things, servant leadership is a way to do that and you know, um, so so these are some of the things that we'll talk about today. But oh, I mean, I'm a I'm a son. I'm a you know, I'm a brother. Um, I'm not a father or husband, but uh, I try to be the best son and brother uh, and human that I can be. Good humans are what we need. We need good humans. <laughs> so cheers to that. And why is it? Is this weird that my brain feels like it's almost like in conflict or it's the opposite that your dad went from chemical engineering to environmental? Well, the, the, the title was misleading. It, it just means what you're working with. So it's still chemical okay. engineering, but you're working with water and like different types of environmental materials. Doesn't mean you're engineering for the environment. If, okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. No, that does make a lot of sense. Okay. Just yeah. wanted to clarify some things that I'm just like, it's your, it's, it's your it's your medium. So if you're an electrical engineer, your medium is electric is electrical, you know, is voltage and you know uh, uh, is uh, mediums for for electricity to pass through. If you're chemical, your medium is chemical. If you're environmental, your medium is environmental. Basically, okay. just with whatever the medium is. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Now my brain yeah. was not catching it at first. <laughs> so over two decades of leadership and actually working in a corporate environment and not even mm-hmm. corporate environments, but worldwide corporate environments. Mm-hmm. How did you get started? I mean, was it something that you kind of fell into or was it your intention to be in leadership? 
Um, I think once I got into corporate, my intention was to be in leadership because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to affect how people experienced the job, right? But, you know, I fell into corporate, you know, really um, due to the university that I chose. I went to Florida A&M University, which is a historically black college university in Tallahassee, Florida. And um, through my, my school's internship program, I did my first corporate job in Detroit, Michigan as a pharmaceutical sales rep um, in, in Detroit and did that for eight months. And then I got a chance to go to Brazil as my second internship for 16 months. Um, and did an international assignment when I was 23. And that really like, you know, changed everything. I've lived in Brazil three times in my life in three different, very different moments, you know, uh, from 20, from, from 23 to 25, from 29 to 31, and then from 41 to 43. So very, very interesting time periods, almost 10 years apart, uh, in that country. So I consider Brazil to be like a second home to me. But yeah, I mean, I, I was insatiably curious about leadership. You know, from the moment I started my corporate career about motivating, you know, productivity, motivating engagement, getting the most out of people, you know, just something that fascinated me. So I read everything that I could possibly get my hands on. And I had managers who kind of fed that, you know, like, listen, read this, read this, read this. And so my managers and my mentors kind of like fed that spirit in me and stoked that fire. And then they gave me early opportunities to, to do it at a very high level. So I didn't really climb like the leadership level that you go from like, you know, from being an individual contributor, like managing a small group to managing a bigger group. No, I went from managing myself to managing hundreds of people. And so it was kind of like a big leap. So I had to, it's good that I invested so much time in learning about the topic because I kind of was never underwater about leadership, but, you know, then it allowed me to, you know, with a strong foundation, take it easy. Interesting. And so actually fun fact, because you mentioned Brazil and now I'm, I remembered something. A fun personal fact, you speak like how many languages? Multiple. Portuguese is one of them. Yeah, fluent in Portuguese. Um, I can I can I'm I can get around in Spanish. Uh in Turkish and Indonesian, I know enough to be dangerous is what I say. I know enough not to be taken advantage of. So so as my Indonesian team learned, uh, you know, when they'd be talking, I'd be like I'd answer them in Indonesian, they'd be like, Oh, he knows he knows what we're saying, so be careful around Omar. Uh, so question on and this is a little off topic from leadership, but just because you've been in these different areas, um, did you find being a black man in these organizations, was it different in different companies or be, or excuse me, not companies, but countries, mm-hmm. or was it s- fairly similar because it was all still just a corporate environment? No, because you have to live in the place where right? I lived in these countries. Like I lived in Brazil. So, you know, I'll give you this, I'll take you place by place. So Brazil, you know, being in a company was great. Although you don't see the only people who were of color other than myself were security guards um, at the time. But, you know, it was weird for me because being working in a corporation was the first time that I was American before I was African-American. It's weird. So basically people relate this is this is that's similar for Turkey and also for Indonesia. People don't relate to you as your race, they relate relate to you as your nationality first, which is really which is like for us where race is so prevalent here in the US and everything is filtered through black and white. To be speak to be seen first as an American and then second as your race was like a reorientation that I had to go through in my brain to kind of get my head around that. Um 
and that was that was a case in Turkey, also in Indonesia, where people didn't really relate to me as a they didn't they didn't they wouldn't say Omar the black guy, they say Omar the American. He's American, you know, and so and so American was your you know American that carried the either positive or negative weight depending on what was happening in the world in the early two thousands. Being an American was not so great. <laughs> under I would say under Obama, being American was fantastic, and then being you know. And then under Trump, being an American was, wasn't great again. So, you know, outside outside of the U.S., so not you know, put, casting any dispersion on anything, but like I'm saying how foreigners see us, see the country. And so you're seeing through that lens, and they want to know what kind of American are you. Before they even get in, we even get into racial conversation and questions, about, it's all about the American experience. What kind of American are you? And then, okay, then we can talk about your racial identity. Which is very, which is very different than how we experience the world living in the U.S., where the racial identity carries so much weight, uh, and then maybe where you grew up and maybe what school you went to or whatever it is, you can offset your racial identity by, you know, going to Harvard or you know being a part of whatever club or whatever it is. Um, but you know, globally, it was it was the opposite experience. And so in Brazil, it was a lot of black people, no black people in corporate. That's Brazil. In Turkey. No black people. <laughs> so basically, people stared at me. I, I remember going to like, I'm wearing a suit, going to work, going down, taking the train and going on the escalator and everyone coming up the escalator is staring at me like I'm an alien with three heads. It was very uncomfortable because I like stood out so much in that culture. And the same thing in Indonesia. In Indonesia, they don't stare at you. In Indonesia, you become a celebrity. They, just, they, they want to take pictures of you. So in the Asia, like I, you know, I was in Japan, I was in Indonesia. They would want to like, you know, take pictures. I, I, I'm in some weird wedding pictures. I know, like just some random wedding albums. Like who's the black guy, you know, in this picture? Because they would just like randomly come up to you with a whole wedding party and take pictures of you in a mall and in a restaurant. It's uh, so, so you know, it, I would say like, you know, in Asia, your blackness is like being like a mascot, and in Turkey, your blackness is like you're an alien. And in and in Brazil, my blackness was, you know, just kind of not supposed to be in this place, but I'm here. The um, it's funny. I've shared this before on the show, but I have a um, my friend and I had gone on a trip. It was a long trip, and our end destination or where we ended was in Singapore, and oh, she's yeah. black. And it was my first experience with this ever. We're just like wandering down the street just checking out singapore and all of a sudden these people come running up to us not us excuse me her and they're her. like can we take your picture and i'm yes, like yes, what yes who yes. who are you do are you somebody that i didn't realize i'm like are you famous and she goes no, no this is what happens it's just a thing in asia i don't know why it is a thing but it, it, is, it is a thing like uh, i remember being on a train in japan and it's like seven schoolgirls on the on the on the subway and they're like every time they looked at me they did the whole <laughs> And they would come, and they ended up like so. One of them who spoke English came up to me and asked me to take a picture with the group, and I was just like, "Okay, I don't know where this is going to end up, but I'm sure, you know, I, I guess that my face is in some weird albums, so and Facebook around the world. I just know that. I mean, I guess at least they're nice. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. So you don't know what it, you don't know what it means, though. You don't know true. what it actually means. True. Like I don't know if there's another meaning to that that we just don't know. Okay. Uh, I don't. I, I don't. I. I would like to assume it's positive, but you don't know if it's positive. That's true. That's really true. Okay, so coming back to the topic here about leadership, um, and you and I had I mentioned this briefly before, and I know you, you've heard, I believe, um, the podcast. But 
this is obviously not a business podcast. Um, and I think a lot of listeners are probably not thinking of themselves as leaders. So I really want to quickly address that because I do think that before anybody leaves, you know, this episode thinking, oh, well, this isn't an episode for me because it's specific to corporate leadership. Um, I just want to address that really quick. So the reason I thought it would be good to have you on is because I personally believe that leaders were all leaders in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to know what your experience is and, in terms of how leadership translates um, mm -hmm. outside of the corporate world? Well, I mean, I think the first person you ever lead is yourself, right? And so a lot of us don't take ownership of leading ourselves, which is why we get into a lot of the problems that we have in the world is that we don't take accountability for ourselves. And leadership is nothing more than influence. It's basically positive influence to a positive outcome. And so, you know, that's where your mindset, your your habits, your degree of keeping up and tracking your progress, um, your attitudes, your values, all those are areas of self-leadership, your principles. You know, these are things that you, that we cannot take for granted. We have to lead ourselves. Um, because if you, if you don't lead yourself, you know, how can you lead anybody else? I tell people in business all the time, like, why is somebody following you? Are they following you because of your title or are they following you because you're a leader? The people who follow you because of the title will only follow you so far. The people who follow you because you're a leader will, will, will run through walls for you because there's no end to that uh, level of influence, right? And so, but it starts with self-leadership. So I think that, what you, as you mentioned, we're all leaders, um, but we have to start with ourselves. I think a lot of, a lot of the, the rampant, you know, a world of depression and anxiety and ADHD and all the things that we're, we're experiencing in society today are due to a, a fundamental lack of self-leadership. You know, people not taking accountability for how they're showing up in the world and doing what's necessary for themselves to get ourselves right. You know, we're, 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 we're practicing victimhood and saying, you know, we're, we're victims of this tragic world and we're not being the protagonists of our own story. And to be a leader is to be a protagonist in your own story, um, to be the lead character in your own adventure. And to take ownership of that and to make sure you're taking care of yourself, you know, um, and it's it's free. It doesn't cost any money to be a lead to lead yourself. It just takes the 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 will. It's all about will. I thought that's the three power words, can, will and do. You have to have the can, will, do um, spirit in order for you to lead yourself and then lead yourself to better conditions, better you know, uh, health, better everything. And so it all starts with, with self-leadership. I like that. And um, it's so true. It's really easy to, it's really easy to blame society or our circumstances, our family, oh. our coworkers, pick mm -hmm. your poison. It's really easy to blame other people, but I do like the, I like the idea and the framework of being your own leader and like, mm -hmm leading yourself and thus demonstrating what that looks like cool. the term jedi leadership now first of all i'm going to ask you to kind of explain that and then i know a lot of people will have heard of servant leadership so maybe if we can kind of discuss the sameness or the difference in those yeah. two leadership styles yeah so so jedi leadership 
is an aspirational brand of leadership that contemplates social justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion and how you show up as a leader in order for you to derive greater outcomes for more stakeholders. So basically, you know, um, if you're working in a corporation, you're talking about not just customers, but employees, the environment, the community, and shareholders as the stakeholders you're contemplating. And so in order for you to add value to that many stakeholders, you have to make sure that you are eradicating injustices, eliminating inequities, uh, enhancing, uh, uh, expanding diversity and enhancing inclusion. And so that's, that's how you have to show up to do those things if that's your objective, right? So servant leadership is what I call like a, it's like a palate cleanse from what I, what, what today is toxic leadership to, and it gives you the opportunity to achieve Jedi leadership. So servant leadership is nothing more than a reorientation of the typical management hierarchy, where instead of people work you as the boss, you work for them as their supporter and as, as someone who supports them, develops them, and, and serves them by helping them achieve the objective. You achieve your objectives through others. You achieve your objectives through serving others in a positive way. And so basically, it's not the top down, it's the bottom up. And that's servant leadership. And so when you go from, if you want to go from, you know, the traditional, what I call archaic and toxic modern current leadership to being a modern leader who's who can actually impact positive change on not just yourself and not just a group of people, but on the environment, on the community, on customers, and still be profitable, then you have to go through the reorientation of servant leadership. So essentially, a servant leader can also be a Jedi leader. You you have to be a servant. You, you cannot you cannot be a Jedi leader without being a servant leader. Okay, perfect. All right. Yeah. This I feel like is so important moving forward. But I know, and I guarantee you know, that there are certainly businesses, organizations, individuals who think it's too touchy-feely, think it's too overcomplicated. Right. Like, I am your manager. You will right. do what you are supposed to do because that's the role we're in, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, um, and this is not a term that I would use at all, but it's I'm using it because I did see a comment on it. But there are even people that will go as far as to say this is like a, a communist type, you know, where it's it's too soft, whatever. What would you say to those people? Or do you just leave them on their own to wallow in their own self-pity? Um, I mean, listen, you know, uh, I describe a tsunami of change that's coming, whether you want it to be here or not. And so I'm just trying to provide, I'm trying, trying to be solution-oriented. Because it doesn't matter if you're on the right, on the left, in the center, on the top, you know, on the moon. This change is happening. And so, you know, um, there's demographic change happening in the U.S. I mean, in 20 years, we're going to be more black and brown than we are uh, white. There's going to be uh, uh, new political reimaginings happening. The environment is, is, not getting, is not getting any better. It's only getting worse every day. People's awareness of the impact of things like the megaphone that we have socially on Twitter and other, other social networks, I mean, you know, is only going to get magnified even more. We're only going to get more connected and you have higher awareness. And so I'm just pointing out these are the things that we're dealing with. And so if you don't change, then you're going to get swept away in the tsunami. 
it has nothing to do with your politics or your you know uh, what your what your current belief system is. If you hold on to this stuff, you're going to get swept away. And so it's really more about just kind of listen. This is the this is the art. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to save people basically because a lot of businesses are are not going to survive this next wave of change. You know, we've all, we're already seeing the Great Resignation. We're seeing, you know, 44 million people voluntarily left work last year. Quit. 44 million. That's a lot of people quitting their jobs. You know what I'm saying? So people are realizing there's a lot of ways to make money. I mean, you can make $4,000 a month door dashing, you know, today. You work five days a week, 10 hours a day. You can make nine, You can make 4000 bucks a month. There's a lot, all these side hustles on TikTok and you know, and Instagram that I see every day when I tune into the stories. So you got to give me a reason to go to college. and You have to give me a reason to incur debt. And you have to give me a reason to go work for your corporation. Because right now, I'm not seeing, so unless you are about what you say you're about, there's no reason for me to do that because I can, I can, technology has ena- is enabling other ways to make an income. And so once again, you got to give me an incentive for, why I should spend four years and incur $100,000 debt at your university and why I should work for your corporation and just get bossed at and get told what to do and not be valued for until I become a senior mid-level manager. You know, otherwise, it's for the birds and we're going to do another thing. Gen Z is already like, listen, you know, they're not even looking at the millennials. Like, listen, we don't, we don't want any of this stuff. All you guys are dumb. We're doing it this way. We're going to do it a whole different, we're going at a whole new door. And so, and so that's what I would, I would just say, listen, like, you know, you can resist this stuff if you want to, you call it touchy feely, call it whatever you want. You're, you're, you're trying to hold on to an old ideal that is going to slip away in the storm. And so, you know, I'll see you in the water. I mean, I'll be in the boat. I agree. And with, I think it's so funny because when we talk about the, the great resignation, the great reshuffling, I've heard it called a few different things in, in my primary work, I do employee benefits. I work with a lot of employers and I've heard, and it's not just employers who say this, it's kind of a rhetoric that people like to repeat and repeat and repeat of like, oh, nobody wants to work anymore. No, that's actually not true. That's not true at all. They've just decided that they're going to advocate for themselves now. So you can show up to the party or you can be short-staffed. And and I think there's a lot of really strange things that we're seeing come out of like companies trying to what I would call like pander mm-hmm. really vacantly though. It, it's just strange things that they're trying to do to pretend they're socially aware and oh, that yeah. they are inclusive. And it's just like, just take it back a couple steps because that doesn't make any sense. Um, I just, I agree with you. I like the, I like the tsunami imagery, um, although it's a little terrifying, but I mean, listen, (laughs) if it's true, it's true. It is what it is. And I agree. Like it, people do need to kind of, I think part of it, and I'm kind of just off the cuff here in terms of how it feels to me and how I've heard other people say it is part of the new shifting is people are kind of against change mm-hmm. in any way, right? Like it's change is hard. It's difficult. And when you're talking about a company specifically, 
or being an employee in a company, if you're like, oh, settled in, like you're making your money and you know what your job is and all of a sudden they come and shift it up a bit, it's uncomfortable. So there's this level of being really uncomfortable, acknowledging that change needs to happen, but not being the one to do it, not wanting to be the one that has to like take the lead if it were. So how does that look if you're going into a company because when we're talking about leadership in a company, you can have top top of the line leadership, right? Like the owner of the company. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you can have maybe middle management type mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. And then there's going to be leadership within a small team of people, mm-hmm. right? We've seen that too, where it's like yeah. there's an influencer within just the the, the bottom tier. I, that's a bad thing to say, but like the bottom tier of, of right. an employee group. Right. And if that person gets fed up, you're going to lose a lot of people behind them, right? Yeah, yeah. So what does it look like when you're going in and trying to kind of get engagement through all of those levels? So, so for me, you know, my approach, because, you know, a lot of the people who talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion are either people coming from academia, so they're coming from an academic background, um, or they're coming from a purely human resources background, which, which means you aren't responsible for P&L's bottom line, top line decision making. And so your vantage point, it's, it, if you're coming from that perspective, it's very easy to think that the answer is training, uh, crucial conversations, uh, you know, and we need to talk, we need to, we need to own our, you know, own our original sin of slavery. And it's easy to come at it from that, that angle, that angle, you know, so I, 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 I have an MBA in marketing. We have, we, we have a phrase that said you can use judo or you use karate. So judo is I use my enemy's inertia to throw them over my shoulder. They're coming at me, I take them and throw them over. I just use their energy and toss them down. Karate is hand-to-hand combat, right? So that's the hardest way of fighting. That is karate. My approach is judo. So basically, I try to create, uh, use the existing inertia that already exists in the system to make the change happen. And so the way you do that is a part of one of four arguments for change. So there's a the moral argument which is the weakest argument, unfortunately. So that's the, we should change because it's the right thing to do because it's the best way to treat people and, you know, and it will get, you know, the environment needs to be cleaned up and communities need to be engaged. And we, it, that doesn't hold weight, right? So unfortunately, the moral argument is only a small piece of the overall story. Second argument is the peer pressure argument, changing because everyone else is doing it. So that's, it has a little bit more strength because nobody wants to be left behind, right? Nobody wants to, Nobody wants to be last in the race. So we're all going to move a little bit if just somebody moves. If leaders move forward, we'll, we'll all follow to a certain degree. It's what you see a lot of this performative allyship. Everybody kind of throwing their name in the hat and say, oh, we're in, we're in too. We're doing that too. Even though they're not really, they're not really, but they don't want to be perceived as being a part of the, you know, the negative group, right? So you have that. Third argument is the innovation argument, which is changing because this is how we're going to produce the future, right? This is how we're going to survive the waves of change and all these trends that are happening. So we need to embrace these things because of innovation, because it allows us to innovate better, faster, and beat the competition, not be be the leaders and not be the peers who follow, right? And then the fourth argument is risk mitigation. And risk mitigation is the things that are going to stop us from being able to operate. So the risks uh, inherent in the system, like the pandemic, like regulations, like lawsuits, like nobody wanting to work for our company, 
that will prevent us from being able to sell whatever it is we're trying to sell. And so I combine a powerful four-step argument. I talk about all four of these things as a reason to change. There's elements of all four. Depending on where the company is, we highlight you know, the right lever that will get the executives leaning in so we can make the movement happen. And then it's a step-by-step process. Uh, and I tell people it's a three-year journey. Like this is not, you're not going to be able to, to say anything this year about what we're doing. You invest now, you get the results three years from now, you know, and you have to invest big and invest heavy, just like you invested in compliance, ethics, uh, and, and social governance and all that stuff. You have to invest the same way if you want to achieve the innovation and, the you know, risk mitigation, you know, benefits. You don't want to achieve them without investing in, in the right way, bringing the right capabilities and then moving the organization forward. So my approach is, once again, judo, not karate. Okay. I don't know if you intentionally did this or if it's lined up this way on purpose, but my brain just built like a pyramid of what you were saying. And so as you layered it in, I'm thinking moral is at the top, which is the tiniest piece Mm -hmm. of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And then going down to risk management, which is my business and I love it. So that's like the foundation, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so that was perfect. That's a really great that's a really great way of describing it because I mm-hmm. think you didn't even tell me about to think a pyramid, but the way you <laughs> described it kind of gave me that tangible visual yeah. explanation. Yeah. Yeah. So how how does just thinking about the investment mm-hmm. um and the three year journey, mm-hmm. I think in a world where it's so driven by instant gratification, mm-hmm. How how can that be accessible to maybe startups who don't have that necessarily that initial? Because if if we we could argue that the startups might have the least you know financial ability to to invest in something like that, mm-hmm. but also be the most important part person to do that, right? Uh, well, I always advocate you know for startups is to start right. If you're starting up, start right. Yeah. Start start with the modern principles. Don't start, you know, with principles from ten years ago. If you have if you have the opportunity to start a business today, start with the best of today. You know, the best you have today. Um, and so that 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 that's exactly right. But I think that I mean, the, the, once again, the right reason why I call this judo is a lot. The environmental uh, movement that's happened in a lot of companies um, is the is the inertia that I'm talking about. So it had the exact same framework. There was a moral, there was a peer pressure, there was an innovation, and there was a risk mitigation reason to adopt environmental sustainability. We've seen 70% of companies make dramatic progress in terms of their environmental footprint and impact um, over the last 20 years because, you know, they began to see this as as an organizational imperative to do so. So if you're a founder, of course, you need to think about, you need to think about, it's just about thinking about these things right from the start. Think about your community that you're founding in. Think about the environmental impact of, of you doing business. So if you're, if you're a tech startup, servers, cloud, uh, electricity, um, you know, uh, waste that you're creating right from the beginning. So, so begin, contemplate that in your early business plans. Don't have to clean it up later on once you scale. The same thing with people. Think, think, inclusion and diversity and equity and justice right from the beginning. So build your processes from the beginning based on the best principles of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion right from the beginning. So you don't have to go back and read. What happened with environmental is that 
companies had to go and fundamentally re-engineer their entire system to be more environmentally uh, uh, sound, right? It had to, they had to, it was a painful, very painful process, very expensive to re-engineer everything. It's going to be the same thing for DEI. You got to go, if you're big, you're going to have to go through the pain of re-engineer everything so that you can, you, you are fit for purpose and fit for future uh, moving forward. If you're small, you can build it from the beginning, from the ground up. So you don't have to, you don't have to go uh, retrofit anything 10 years from now when you scale. And so that's, that's basically how you do it. I'm a founder, startup founder myself. And as I build my company, I will have those things, uh, environmental community and, uh, and, and Jedi considerations right from the beginning. And that makes a lot of sense. So with a startup, it wouldn't necessarily be that invest strong investment financially because they're not having to rework an entire system. It's sort of like, Heather, like, like anybody who's starting a company today is not focused on physical space. They're all going virtual hybrid right now because that's the, that's that's right now. We know the future is virtual and hybrid. So no one is saying, oh, to have my startup, I need to open up a big box building and then put in 100 people. No, we're going to find the best people everywhere they are and we're going to work virtually and we're going to start to stick up. Everyone who's doing a found, the founder's day is not geographically constrained in their employee supply uh, chain. They're looking globally. And so that's just, that's that's a modern principle affecting, you know, so build with the same kind of idea in mind around environmental uh, and community and Jedi. So another thing that comes up a lot, and when we're talking about leaders and the demonstration of, I mean, when you're a leader, it's almost like every single thing you say matters even more. Um, and you're under more of a microscope, right? So don't trip because someone's going to call you out on it. Um, how much of, I heard a, I heard actually an interview that you did where you talked about the origin of the word boss. (laughs) So I'd love for you to share that first of all. Um, but also following that, I'm interested in your thoughts on how much of the word choices and variations are really just semantics versus being really important. So, um, yeah, so I, I, so to answer your second part of your question first, I, I really think that, that what we say matters. Um, you know, if you think about the communication continuum, you know, it's the sender, it's the, it's the decoding process, and then it's the receiver, right? And so different words are decoded by our experiences, our values, our beliefs, our, you know, whatever, and then it hits every, all, everybody different. So if there's a word that has been proven to trigger, don't use that word. If there's a word that's been proven to ameliorate or 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 cause harmony, use that word. I mean, that's it's just you know these things matter. Sentiment matters. Um, intention matters. Between you know sometimes you say the wrong thing, but you meant the right thing. You know, so intention matters, and and people will give you the benefit of the doubt. You can trip as long as you're in, you know as long as you don't do it. As long as your intentions and your actual what you say don't mismatch too many times, right? So you can, you know, it's like you know the old, yeah, I'm a good person, but no one experiences goodness from you, right? So you're only good to yourself. <laughs> no one else thinks you're good, and so in that, in that, the I, I, you know, I'm on a jihad against the word boss. Like, you know, the title of my book is "Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss." You know, I'm the only one talking about not being a boss. You know, except for the person who wrote the unbossing book. Basically, it's me and that individual 
everyone else is, is, is upholding this title because it's just convenient. Everyone uses this word. But it's a really, really, it, the word has a really heavy negative connotation in the American history, specifically, maybe not so much in, outside of the U.S., um, but in American history, in any place where you had overseers and you had, you know, l- low paid or free labor, i.e. slavery, the boss was the overseer. The overseer uh, uh, is master. And so boss is actually based on the Dutch word base, which means master. And so when you call someone boss, you're actually calling them master. And and so for me, the only person you should call boss is yourself. So we have to be bosses of ourselves. But no one else should be called boss. I mean, the title should be eradicated from the lexicon um, because it no longer serves. It, it sets a very, very low bar for what the job actually is. The job is not, no one, you can't get away with bossing anymore. You have to at least manage, hopefully coach, and then aspirationally lead. Bossing doesn't get it done anymore, which is why, you know, these, we see we see all these people reshuffling. Like, why? I would much rather be my own boss, my own master, than to work for these corrupt, toxic masters who don't who don't have aligned beliefs as I have, you know, and who are who don't support the causes that I support, don't, don't live, you know, don't, don't have the same values and principles. Why would I, I don't have to do that anymore. I only did it, we only, this has only happened because we had to. You know, there was only one way to climb. If you were a black person coming out of civil rights in the 1970s, you have one choice. Go to college, right? To get to uplift. But black people are innovators. We created... We created hip hop. We created a whole genre of music to uplift ourselves out of the community that did not exist. Think about that for a second. Hip hop has only existed since like 1978. We created an entire uh, uh, industry out of struggle because there was nothing else available because necessity is the mother of invention. And not everybody could go to college, but a lot of people could sit on the street and buy a boombox and rap. So it was much more accessible. So it's easier for us. So people are always going to, and that's what's happening now is that people are, technology is allowing us to innovate outside of the traditional structure of how people are supposed to generate income. And that disruption, corporations are scrambling to try to figure it out. They're trying to scramble how to figure out how to be on the receiving side of that. But some, a lot of industries don't, gig work's not going to work for most people. Most companies can't get a buy on gig work. You can't research and develop the next pharmaceutical product with gig work. You can't, you know, run a financial behemoth like Bank of America with gig work. You have to have these structures, these systems. So you better be a good company doing good things for people and and, and creating a, a great environment for us to to give me an incentive to want to come work for you. Otherwise, once again, I'll be my own master and I don't have to call anyone boss ever again. And actually, all of that, I think, really solidifies the the points that were made earlier in that the leadership is definitely needed in a corporate environment, but, or I should say, and it's super important for the individual because the gig work and all of these opportunities are out there. Yeah. At the same time, you really have to be able to do that self-leadership because it is not for the weak of heart. You know, it's yeah. 
there's a lot involved. You look at, you, they make it look easy on TikTok or whatever it is. Listen, first of all, you get a real estate license and they get in the real estate game. It's going to take you eight months to, uh, to be a gig worker. You've got to have a working vehicle that's reliable that can get you from A to B. You got to have a good car. You don't. You can't just do that with a beat up whatever it is. You got to invest and have the right infrastructure for yourself. You have to get up in the morning and set your own schedule and make sure you're at it and do the job. If you want to be a drop shipper for Amazon, if you want to do any of these these hustles, you know they require time. The same thing: mindset, habits, and tracking. Everything you do in life, whether corporate or for yourself, is going to require what I call the MHT and the can well do. Like you cannot succeed and thrive without those things you can start doing something and fail but if you want to succeed and thrive and actually derive the full potential of the thing you're going after you're going to need mht you're going to need can well do love it love it love it um the final three questions are you ready i'm ready okay <laughs> um what is one question that everyone listening can ask themselves today or not necessarily, it doesn't even have to be a question. It could be an actual action that they take, but what is something that everyone listening can do today to enhance their own leadership skills? So I would say the first thing is to go from, to, 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 to take a self assessment of whether you are an optimist, a pessimist or a fatalist. So an optimist, so just to give you to, to describe what it means. So, an optimist is somebody where when things happen, when external things happen, they don't put a judgment to it. They say a thing happened. They say, I believe that I can, I will, I can develop, overcome, progress in spite of this thing. And even if I don't achieve the desired objective because of this thing, I learned and gained and grew because of it. That's an optimist. A pessimist is automatically puts a judgment to things. So a negative thing happened, a neutral thing happened, a good thing happened. So you start judging the thing. So a bad thing happened, and then because the bad thing happened, bad things will always happen, and nothing I do can affect the outcome, so I might as well just sit here and suffer. That's pessimism as an attitude. And then fatalism is everything is always going to be bad, and it's literally why I get up in the morning, like literally why I even exist. That's fatalism, which we're seeing a lot of this happen in society today. People are becoming a lot more, it starts with cynical, Cynicism, and then you get into pessimism, and then you get into fatalism, and then you're not here anymore. And and optimism is a choice. And so uh, optimism will keep you alive, keep everybody around you alive, and keep you thriving and keep you striving towards uh, towards progress. So I, I would say, you know, choose optimism. Okay. I love that. And actually, I'm glad that you said that last piece, too, because I'm thinking, like, People often say, oh, you're so optimistic, optimistic and positive. And I'm like, that's not what's natural i'm telling you it's like work. it's not necessarily what the immediate thought is that comes to my, your brain but like is the immediate negativity is it valuable and it, i just don't see that it is so right. you're right you choose you choose to be a certain way and then i think just from my own experience that can become a habit you can train your mind to mm -hmm. reorganize that and yeah. so you're not negative all the time which i think you're right is so important because there's a lot to be negative about. It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery <laughs> it's slope. Very slippery. I'll, I'll tell you this. Like, I mean, even, you know, um, people, I mean, the last two weeks have been really bad with Buffalo and then, you know, Texas and the shootings. And, you know, it's horrible and things have to be done. Uh, it need, we, need, we need change. I will also say 
that with the amount of guns that exist in America, it is a shock that I can leave my house and not get shot at every single day. That's the optimism. Is that a lot of people, most people, the vast majority, 99% of people are not using their guns to shoot at people every day. That's a, that's a fact. We choose to focus on the 1%. But you can see it both ways. You can still have a problem in the 1% and fix that. But it, and acknowledge that, man, the world is not as evil as we think it is because 99% of people who have all these weapons are not using them to kill anybody. It's yeah, and that that is also oh my gosh, we could really get into this for this this is a topic right here, yeah. um, but we won't for this episode. We'd just probably scare some people away, which is <laughs> fine. But yeah, you're right. It's it's a choice, and and yeah. I think the other thing that um, I've been kind of obsessed with, and I've mentioned it, so please, listeners, don't get annoyed with me. But also, uh, a former guest has um, I follow, and and he's mentioned it a few times too. Is just we really need to knock it off with this idea that like it's either the person that's bad or it's the gun that's bad. Two things can be true at the same time. We yeah. can desperately need change yeah. and also understand that yes, it is a small portion of people that own guns that are doing this. Yeah. Like those two things can actually live together. And I think when we yeah. figure out how to get comfortable with this, we can have meaningful conversations to yeah. enact the change. For me, once again, judo versus karate, right? Yeah. So, so the judo, the karate solution is get rid of all guns. That's karate. It, it, it'll never happen. Like karate is what people want. Like the the ideal is let's get rid of all the guns and we'll have a safer society. That that's the karate. Too much inertia against that. Judo is first of all, ninety percent of people agree that we should have tougher uh, tougher um, background checks. We can get that done. The second thing of judo is is that most people, if you ask them, would agree that we don't need assault rifles in the private sector. The vast majority of people, even gun owners, would agree. They would agree. If, if, you, if you take anything away from us, it, our assault rifles, okay, we're, we're willing to get rid of that to eliminate that particular type of weapon from society. You can get those two things done. But you, but you have to say this is all we want and be happy with that result. And then track and see what happens. The, the assault weapons ban that was given that was done between 94, I think, in, or 2004 and 2016 worked. Like, it, 43% less mass shooting. So when you ban this type of weapon, and hopefully if you can institute higher, a, a more rigorous background checks, you can actually really, 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 really reduce the amount of, of, of these things that happen. And that's what all we're trying to do is you, you can't eliminate the problem because it's, uh, bad people are always going to do bad things. But you can... Similar to 9-11, you know, there was never, we haven't seen another, because of all the measures, all the pain we go through through TSA, stuff worked. We haven't had another mass bombing like that on American soil since that time. We took, mitigated, we took mitigation steps. We all suffered a little bit collectively together as a society. We all sucked it up. And the benefit is we're all a little bit safer. And so that's what I'm talking about. It's the same, it's the same idea. Absolutely. I oh, I think all this is fresh, but I've just seen some of the, there is a large, I'm not even going to put a number to it. There is a sect of people who are just so adamant about certain things. Somebody literally put this post out there and it said, you didn't see them banning airplanes after 9-11. And I'm like, come on, really? Like, tell me you never flew before 9-11 without telling me that. Listen, because... Everything, oh is, everything inside the airplane changed. So the way 
flight from flight attendants to air marshals to airlines to everything inside the plane changed after 9-11 and everything getting on the plane changed. So they did they did yeah. both. They did the background checks and they changed the plane. So you have to do both. They affect the change on both levels. You know, um, if you were a flight attendant before 2001, your training after that was has been very different. You know, you know, talk to flight attendant friends. Tell, let them tell you how they're trained today versus the requirements they face today versus what it was in '98. And you will understand how much they change the regulations for how we fly and who gets to get on the plane. Both they did both things. Yep, it's this it's this singular mindset of you can't take this because that means it's yeah. yeah. So we're on the same page. Okay, <laughs> so got a little off script there. <laughs> Not that there's a script, but the second final question is, what are five words you would use to describe yourself? Five words. Creative, um, selective, intuitive, uh, confident, and uh, direct. Okay. Excellent. And then where would everybody go to connect with you and stay in touch and find your books? Oh, because by the way, we didn't mention your books. If you want to mention the <laughs> titles. Oh, I didn't yes. even. Okay. Yes, please. So yes. Um, Leaderboard, the DNA of high performance teams, the servant leaders manifesto and be a Jedi leader, not a boss leadership in the era of corporate social justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, all available on Amazon uh, under my name, Omar L. Harris. You can also go to my website, omarlharris.com, and find more information about myself uh, and my books. You can buy autographed copies of my books on my website. If you're on LinkedIn, link in with me, Omar L. Harris, uh, and uh, you'll find all my other socials between, you know, between my website and uh, Amazon and, and LinkedIn. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I feel like we could have definitely gone longer because <laughs> there's a lot more to talk about, but yes. I really appreciate your insight you're sharing and the fact that you're really putting it out there in published writings to make it accessible for other people, because it's a really important thing that everyone pay attention to. Thank you, Heather. Appreciate you. Thank you as always for listening in today. I hope the conversation today with Omar caused you to think a little bit more deeply on how you can make sure you are being the best leader for yourself first. I think that is so important and I loved what he said about the ownership and accountability for leading yourself first before trying to tell anyone else what to do. Of course, as always, the thoughts and opinions that we shared today, they're our own. We do encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Connect with Omar on LinkedIn and all of his sites. We'll actually link those in the show notes. So don't forget to go there to make sure to get the links. Also connect with Diversity on Fire at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Diversity on Fire. If you enjoy the show, I very much appreciate a rating and review wherever you listen and you can do those ratings and reviews. Drop us a little love note. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep those conversations going. Mm-hmm.